So welcome to episode 13 of the Next Gen Cast with Martin McShane. Before we get started, if you listened to episode 12 with Imogen Stavely and you were one of those kind people that fed back to me in some way, thank you so much. I passed on all your lovely comments to Imogen and she's settling into life as a mum of two but supremely grateful for everyone that took the time to say how helpful she was. So today's conversation is with someone I've known for a few years now called Dr Martin McShane. Martin's a GP by background and he's currently Chief Medical Officer at Optum, which is a health information technology and services firm that's part of United Health Group. Before that, he's had over three decades of experience in the NHS, both as a GP and in management roles. So for 12 years, he acquired commissioning and executive management experience through fund holding and as a PCT Chief Exec. And then after that, he worked at a national level at NHS England as the Director for Enhancing the Quality of Life for People with Long-Term Conditions. He was then going to consider retirement, but his curiosity got the better of him and he decided to take on his current role at Optum. And he's now engaged in a programme to support the development of population health management across the NHS, which is why, he tells me, he's still working. In this conversation, Martin tells me about all these roles and why he moved from one to the other, and what he's learnt about leadership, failure, and looking after yourself along the way. Here's Martin McShane. Martin McShane, welcome to the Next Gen Cast, and thank you so much for fitting us in as 2020 draws to a close. So we first met when I was a clinical fellow at NHS England a few years ago now. And I remember someone saying to me, Nish, you have to, you have to speak to this chap, Martin McShane. And I must confess, I, I didn't know who you were at the time. But you might not remember this, but I distinctly remember coming to Optum headquarters and having a coffee with you. And we just talked about life and leadership and general practice. And I remember my fingers sort of itching towards a pen and I started writing things down because I just got this sense that the stuff you were telling me I was going to come back to again and again. And I definitely have done over the years, which is why I wanted to get you on the podcast because I think other people would benefit from it too. It's very kind of you. I appreciate that feedback. So I've just spent some time at the beginning of this podcast explaining who you are and the jobs that you have done and currently do. But for people that maybe don't know you, who's the real Martin McShane? I I suppose uh, it's a really difficult question. And um, I suppose it's someone who, from a very, very early age, always wanted to be a doctor. You know, I, I just can't remember when I didn't want to. I know other people, they sort of made a decision when they've done A levels or they've come to it later in life. But I, I never wanted to be anything else. So all the decisions I've made throughout life have been about that sort of passion. And it has evolved and grown in that I kind of am endlessly curious and someone who is really interested in seeing how we can improve things and how we can make things better, how things can work better. Um, And also I've been described, I remember one illuminating coaching session I had when 
the coach turned to me and said, well, you're a risk taker, aren't you? Because in my personal life, I've always done things like, you know, rock climbing, marathons. Um, I love challenges. I love taking risks. I love really, really being curious the whole time about what more could we do. And I suppose that's, that's me really, is, is someone who um, likes a challenge, very curious and constantly frightened. Frightened by what? What do you mean? Well, by those challenges, there's a kind of, there's kind of fear of failure and there's a, there's a fear of, am I doing the right thing? And a fear that people will think it's, it's, it's daft or it's stupid or you shouldn't be doing that. So there's a kind of, it's, it's, it's quite complex in the sense that I've, I've actually, and then one of the things I would say based on my experience is I've learned an awful lot from my failures, which has then also led on to success. And I, th- I think it's overcoming that fear of failure and being prepared to accept that this might not work. I tell you what, actually, you just reminded me, and I would recommend it to everyone, on BBC Sounds at the moment, Barack Obama is reading extracts from his uh, book, Wow, is all I can say about him. But he said something in one of the episodes, which was, I, you know, someone, I, I thought that this was probably completely impossible and we won't be able to do this, but it's worth trying. And I think that's, it's, you know, we can often find the reasons for not doing something, but if there is the opportunity, the potential to make something better, then it's always worth trying. Sorry, that's quite long-winded. No, thank you, Martin. I think that's a great start. And you've given us a bit of a feel of who you are, which is, it sounds like a risk taker and someone who's just willing to have a go. And you said something there that I just want to pick up on straight away, which is failure. And I, perhaps a bit weirdly, enjoy talking about failure because I just think it ends up unravelling so much learning. So could we dive right in there perhaps and could you tell me about a time when you have failed in your leadership journey? Well, I I started right at the very beginning and, you know, I always wanted to do medicine and at school I went into sixth form. I'd got O-levels and that's how old I am at that stage. And I went in and we didn't have any exams in the first year and I did the school play and I did loads of things and I ploughed my mock exams. I think the letters E and D appeared in the mocks. And that brought me up fast because I realised that um, if I didn't do something about this, I wasn't going to realise my dream. And um, there was the opportunity to be, uh, and I loved, I loved drama, I loved being in the school plays and acting. And there was the opportunity to be the lead in the, in the school play the next year. And I turned it down because I knew it would be too big a distraction. I needed to focus. And I, I, went, into, I went into lockdown about 35, 40 years ago. I curtailed going out. I studied hard. And I got the A-levels. I, you know, I pulled my socks up and I got the A-levels and I got into med school. 
And I realized, and that was in a very early lesson that you need to see what's, what, what you've done wrong and then take corrective action to make sure you don't do it again. Another big one, massive one, was when I was, um, I was appointed as a PCT chief executive. I uh, put a practice out to tender. And when the contract was awarded, there was uproar. And it eventually led to me being in the high court. And it caused enormous problems and enormous difficulties. And when I look back over that, I realized the mistakes I made. But then I went on to another job. And as a result of the learning from the mistakes I'd made in that example, with the support of colleagues, we were hugely successful at delivering transformation. And actually, as a result of what I'd learned from that previous failure, if you like, or mistakes, we had over 90% public support for the changes because we can approach the problem in a completely different way as a result of the experience I'd had of doing it wrong before. So one of the things that I've learned is if someone's made a mistake, don't necessarily sack them. See if they've learned from it, because if they've learned from it, they could be one of your strongest assets in a team. People do make mistakes, but if we can learn from them, that makes us much stronger, much better. Can I just dig a bit deeper into that? How, how do you go about learning from mistakes and failures? Do you have any particular ways of doing it? Well, I think recognizing it in the first instance and accepting. So having, having, uh, you know, having the ability and wherewithal to accept that you got it wrong. So acknowledge that and reflect on it, look at it, perhaps explore it with other people, listen to other people and, and be prepared to learn. And I think, I think that, that for me is incredibly important is having the ability and wherewithal to know that you're not always right. You can get it wrong. I remember having a, when I was appointed as a chief exec and I was fairly new, the then director of public health came in and we'd made a decision about something as an organization. And he came in and sat down with me and he argued that it was the wrong decision. And about 40 minutes into the discussion, I said, actually, Nick, I think you're right. Let's go back and let's change it. And he looked a bit startled and he walked out and then he came back the next day and he said, I just want to tell you, that's been a fairly unique experience for me. Most people in that situation don't change their minds. And I think if you listen and people give you arguments which are based on fact, evidence, change your perception, and you're willing to look at things through different lenses from different angles, then that can help you learn and, and be open to that. So that's, that's, that would be my advice. And such an important leadership trait, even as you get quite high up the ladder, realising that you might be wrong. And you had another failure early on, didn't you? Because you, you didn't choose general practice right from the out, did you? Tell us about that. How did you switch from surgery to general practice? Well, it goes back to actually just pre-final. Someone asked me what I was going to do. And I sort of thought about all the things you could do in medicine. And I thought, well, medicine itself is far too intellectual. 
um, and a couple of the other specialities scared me. And I thought being a good GP was immensely difficult. So I thought surgery looked like the easiest thing to do. And the secret is I probably wouldn't change my mind even now. But I'd, I'd gone through surgical training and done all the bits and pieces, got all the requisite bits of paper and experience. And my number, I was one of the first surgical trainees to get a number. And um, I just got married. And then I got a malignant melanoma. And that kind of made me stop and pause and think. And it gave me an excuse to leave surgery. My wife had just been appointed as a consultant. We had a bit of a family history of men dying young. So my father died when I was 18 months old. And I thought the most important thing is to make sure that my wife is safe and secure if I'm going to die as a result of a malignant melanoma. And I was a bit fed up with surgery in some ways. So I decided to go into general practice. It's not what you would want to help you make a decision, but that malignant melanoma was probably one of the best things that ever happened in my career because the time I spent in general practice was, was probably the golden era in my career in some ways. Does that, do you mind if I ask, does that malignant melanoma, does it play on your mind or has it shaped your perspective even now? Oh gosh, yeah. In what way? Oh, in so many ways. So, um, so as I say, first of all, it gave me a deep insight into understanding uh, the impact of uh, a, a diagnosis like that. As I described it, it's, you know, and said this to patients when I had to give them some advice, it's a bit like someone's put a Kenwood food mixture in your brain. Um, it's going to take some time. And I had, some, I had a wonderful consultant who sorted me out, but also another colleague who said, very wisely said, at this moment in time, very early on, you're thinking about it every day, every minute, every second. In a few months' time, you'll be thinking about it once a day. And then one day, you'll realise you didn't think about it yesterday, and then the gap will get larger. It has, it has given me also a joy in every day. So every day I wake up, it's kind of, yeah, still here. Isn't that fantastic? And um, I think probably made me really really appreciate life and and what it brings and 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 the fact that uh, you know i didn't get any metastases and i'm still here thank you for sharing that i think our our stories of doctors as patients can be so powerful even though at the time it feels like someone's just pulled the rug under your feet but actually it can be we've been there ourselves as a family it can be invaluable but probably you only realize that after a decent period of time has passed yes i think that's absolutely right and um you wouldn't wish it on anyone but it certainly helped me and changed my approach to managing people with with malignancies and uh with life-threatening conditions or life-changing conditions as well hmm. so let's go back to so you you saw the light and you joined general practice now i want to dig into your leadership journey so I know that you had a role at NH England and you mentioned being PCT chief exec. Tell me a bit about how you got into those jobs and maybe when did you first identify yourself as a leader? Well, I'll quickly answer the last question next week. <laughs> um, so, uh, or the week after. When I went into general practice, they just started out on the fund holding journey and I became the lead for the practice. 
and and then the local authority approached a small group of GPs to form a learning set and to help them understand or develop plans for improving equity of funding in general practice. But I had a, a, a group of peers who were all willing to step into a bit of a leadership space. We continued that action learning set for about 10 years and we self-funded it towards the end because we found it so valuable. And we had a facilitator who became a mentor, who became a friend. And I learned an awful lot from him. And he, um, he actually was the one who gave me some wise advice about going and talking to people who'd made the transition from clinical practice into leadership roles. And I went and, and they were all, as you know, also willing to do that. Just have an hour, have a chat, explain things. And the sort of snippets and help they gave was phenomenal. And I gradually uh, evolved through um, through that work to then and fund holding to then becoming a let's get the acronym right PCG chair, and then leading to becoming a PCT and becoming the PEC chair. And then I think the big, the really big change, and this is down to Nigel Crisp, he funded a the Clinical Strategic Leadership course at INSEAD, uh, the business school in, in, in France. And it was two residential weeks separated by about a month and a six-month project. And that injected so many ideas and perspectives into my head that I, you know, I, really, I realised that if you wanted risk and challenge, then here was an area that would give it you in bucket loads. And then the, my then PCT chief exec tapped me on and said, have you ever thought of becoming a chief exec? You know, people make these comments and they're sort of little size, but they sow a seed, which then grows. And then, so then I did apply and was appointed ultimately when that chief exec who sowed the seed a year or two before left. And I became his replacement at the, at the PCT. And I suppose that's when the, the phrase which has stuck with me, you talk about a leadership journey, I think, it's, I think it's a phrase which probably articulates it, was a colleague said to me, you need to occupy the space you're given. So if you're given an opportunity, you need to make a decision, am I going to, if I've been given the privilege of this space, how do I occupy it? in a meaningful, purposeful way. And that, that, that has followed me through my next role when I moved to Lincolnshire and did the work on transformation based on my, you know, my previous mistake. And then of course, I applied for the job at NHS England, not really anticipating I'd ever get it, but I'd been told you needed to, they were doing the big reshuffle of PCPs at that time. I was told by my chief executive and director of finance that I, if I was to get my full redundancy, I needed to make sure I applied. I'd been seen to apply for suitable alternative employment. So I thought this would be a signal that I tried to get another job. And then Bruce Keogh threw a spanner in the works by actually giving me the job. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever forgiven him for. <laughs> and how did you find that working at NH England then? That was just an amazing experience. That was just wonderful. Having the opportunity to 
work with Bruce, work with the team at NHS England, and try and make a try and make a difference was a, was an immense privilege and one I would I would repeat at the drop of a hat. In fact, I'd repeat my entire career at the drop of a hat. It's been, you know, a, a real privilege. But I've also had, I think, if you're thinking about lead, I've had I've had wonderful um, coaching along the way, and I know this is a recurring theme, and I've become a coach myself. And I think that's really helpful to have access to time when you can reflect and be in a safe space to look at some of the things which you're really frightened about, which you find really difficult, which are complex, and you're not sure whether you've got it within you to sort that out. And of course, the great thing about coaching is it, 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 it releases your potential to solve the problems you face. Nobody gives you the answer. You find the answer for yourself. And that's really powerful. Mm. And you say it's a common theme in your leadership journey. And it's a common theme in these podcasts as well. So many of the leaders we've had have mentioned coaching. I used to think coaching was quite self-indulgent because you just spend an hour talking about yourself. But I've heard from people like you. I mean, you, show, you told me that very early on about how useful it was. Yeah, and 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 some of the you know I work with um, um, a guy Jerry Clough who I worked with in Lincolnshire and now works with me in Optum in my current role, and he, he, he the sort of coaching approach he brings to everything he does is something I you know I aspire to emulate. I'm 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 not as good, but I would I I I, I watch and try and learn. Um, if he ever hears this, he'll probably be rolling on the floor with laughter uh, about it. But um, I, I do think when you see when you see people who uh, like that um, and and others I've worked with uh, who really have that ability to listen deeply and be with you where you are, um, it, it it makes a big difference. And when you learn to become a coach yourself, have you then used those techniques to sort of self-coach through difficult times? Yeah, um, it, it, it really interesting you ask that question. Yes, I have. Um, and some of the structures and frameworks that I learned in the course. So, for instance, I used one of the frameworks about thinking about applying for a job when I applied for the NHS England job. And it, it kind of takes you through a structured way of thinking about your, you know, so what do you want? What's the reality? What are your options? And what will you do next? The grow model. So yes, and I use it, I use it when I remember purposefully an awful lot at work if I can. Uh, but I, I would say that that is an area of growth and development for me, which um, is still work in progress. So, Martin, we talked there about you moving into NH England, and I'm quite interested to know what did you learn going to work for NHS England? You said you'd recommend it at a drop of a hat, and I'm curious to know why you say that. Well, I think it's really difficult and challenging, and there's many people, and if you like, I often wonder if I was a failure in that role. Um, because there were things I wanted to try and do, and I would, I would do it differently now. Again, I, if I could go back, I would probably approach it in a different way based on the experience 
and learning I'd had. But it was it 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 it, it was this ability to get really to understand um, what drives the system, how to um, how to manage in a highly complex environment, um, and and being able to see sometimes very small things which you you know there's a thread which comes back to you and you've been able to influence and impact so there's one time you probably know about coordinate my care well during the the disassembly and reassembly of the nhs in back in 2013 um 2012 2013 uh i was rung up i was newly in 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 the role I was sort of interim because NHS England hadn't been formally constituted until 2013, but I started in September 2012. And I was told that the funding for Coordinate My Care had been cut and they weren't going to have any more funding. And I fought really hard to reverse that decision. And I remember getting the phone call just in the new year to be told that the money had been reinstated and and they had the money was there and feeling quite emotional about it and then last week seeing a paper published about the positive impact that coordinate my care has had and just thinking i had you know it's, it's julia and the others who've done all the hard work and the heavy lift but at a moment in time i was able to have a little bit of influence on something which was so important and and that makes me feel proud um so and I, i've seen how other people have had you know someone like alistair burns working in the field of dementia the kind of canny influence and impact he's managed to have and the work he did and watch how people operate so it was a real privilege working with wonderful people having the opportunity to have a little bit of influence to change mindsets and attitudes to certain things and obviously to work for someone like bruce Mm. It was just fantastic. Yeah, well, you know this. He's, he's absolutely fantastic. I think about half the podcast guests we've had on mentioned Bruce at some point. Uh, did you ever feel out of your depth, Martin, when you were there? Oh, yeah, massively. How did you cope with that? Um, so, I'm going to tell you, when I was a surgical registrar in Southampton, I was um, in theatre about two o'clock in the morning with the senior registrar, Paul, and we were operating on a, a bleeding duodenal ulcer. And it was all over the shop. I mean, we couldn't arrest the hemorrhage. And suddenly Paul looked up and he looked, ra- he, he looked like a rabbit in headlights, completely lost. And then he sort of looked round the room, put his head down, got on with the operation, and we successfully got the patient off the table and they lived. And we were in the coffee room later on that morning. And I said to him, what happened in the middle of that operation? And he said, oh yeah, he said, I suddenly thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And then I looked up and I looked around and thought, well, there's no other bugger here who can. So I better just get on and try. And he put his head down and, and to a certain extent, it's a bit like, you know, it was interesting because it reminded me of when Obama said that on, I was listening to the BBC Sounds, uh, one of the episodes where he said exactly that. Um, this feels impossible. 
but that doesn't mean I shouldn't try. So yeah, I think often in leadership positions, you feel out of your depth. Try, draw on other people. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Think about it. Spend some time just pausing and thinking about it. I probably don't do that enough. And, and David Martin, my mentor from way back when, once said to me, the higher up you climb in the leadership, you know, on the leadership ladder, the more you will have to draw upon the well which is within yourself. And I think it is about being, being brave sometimes. And if it accords with your values and you believe in it, then you won't do wrong by carrying on. You may fail, but it's worse not to have tried. That's such good advice. Thank you. That's the sort of thing that I think you said to me about three or four years ago. And I actually get that image in my head of the rabbit in headlights because it feels like that so much. And I suddenly think, I remember that story and look around me and think sometimes if not me, then who? And I just have to have a go. So I'm well, so glad that you talked you about it. You've very successfully stepped into that space, Nish. You've been, I mean, what you've done with Next Generation has been um, fabulous. Yeah, really, people should appreciate that massively. Thank you. It's done, as, as with all these things, it's down to an amazing team. It's not, it's not just me. Um, am I, so we were talking about NH England there. Am I allowed to ask why, why you left and why you went to Optum? And maybe you could even tell us a bit about Optum because people might not, have, might not know much yeah, about um, well, um, it. Well, it, those jobs are very demanding and they're quite, they're quite tiring and also things change. So... The, the structures, the priorities and the emphasis were changing and the role I'd been appointed into no, no longer really had the, the, the purview, the sort of portfolio that I'd been appointed into. And I thought I can either stay and adapt and evolve and change what I do in line with all these other changes, or maybe it's time to leave that space um, which hasn't been re-inhabited since I left in, in, any, in any way, shape or form, because, you know, naturally the system has evolved, and, and do something else. And I'm only a year away from, this is terrible to admit, but I was only a year away from being able to take my pension. Um, so I could bridge going to retirement by going off and do something else. And someone approached me, an erstwhile colleague approached me and said, if you ever feel like leaving NHS England, would you give us first refusal? So I followed up on that. And I, 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 I'd been interested, I've, I've always been a bit of a data nerd and data geek, and I knew that um, Optum is a, health, is a health transformation arm of United Health Group, and they use data and insight to help improve the way health services are delivered when you can see maybe the connection with my sort of passion and rationale uh, for my career so I thought that'd be interesting maybe I'll go and do a year there and that'll bridge me nicely into retirement I'll do some interesting stuff and then um, I can go and pursue the other things I'm interested in that was five years ago it's 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 given me a completely different perspective so quite a culture shock again a bit like moving from surgery to general practice moving from the nhs to an external 
but very healthcare focused. It's a healthcare organization which uses, which uses technology and data, not a technology and data company which is trying to get into healthcare. It always has been a healthcare company and has led transformation in the United States. And it's been a real fascinating to go and visit some of the work that's being done over there and then bring that knowledge and insight. And my, my view is that the NHS has more potential to do what needs to be done well than most other places in the world um, because of our universal payer insurance system. You don't have to worry about whether you can afford healthcare. The NHS number, the foundations of primary care, which, you know, Optum, for instance, will not work. They do a lot of integrated accountable care, integrated care work with um, systems in the US, but they won't do that unless they're predicated on, founded on primary care. You know, <coughs> the, the big transformation, I think, in the next 10, 20 years will be the, I, I hope this will happen for the NHS, but securing a real rebalancing of the system so that primary care in its wider sense is seen as the engine house of improved, you know, continuous quality improvement and delivery of care for the population served uh, within the NHS, supported by the more specialist components. So one of the controversial things I used to enjoy saying to all the national clinical directors uh, is that currently we have a system designed by specialists to service specialisms. We need a system designed to manage complexity and risk supported by specialisms. And that's a very different way of looking at, and if you look at Ribera Salud, if you look at Geisinger, if you look at Clalit, if you know you look around the world, Mark Brittnell's done this fantastic book on health systems around the world. You see this again and again and again, the shift to actually mutual respect and understanding of the different roles and capabilities required in primary care versus specialist care. And that you need to actually look at the system through the eyes of the people you're serving not through conditions, not through organisations, but start with what is happening to people and then build your response on a deep understanding and knowledge and insight based on that. And that's what we've been doing. Optum have been supporting, working in collaboration with the NHS to help truly understand how much potential NHS has to do that really, really well. And I found it some of the most, the last couple of years have been some of the most thrilling work I've done in my entire career. Thank you, Martin. And over the course of the podcast, you've talked so much about the different opportunities that you've had and the way your career has panned out. And I'm quite curious to know as a final question, what role do you think that luck has played in all of that? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I went to an NHS Confederation um, lecture quite a few years ago, which completely reframed my perspective of luck. So the researcher had decided to research people who thought they were lucky. And he sampled a big group uh, of people 
uh, by asking those who thought they were lucky and unlucky. And he said, yeah, when you looked at the characteristics, those who were lucky did seem to be lucky and those who were unlucky did seem to be unlucky. But then he set up a hypothesis as to what might be the reason for that. And he asked samples from each of the groups to come in and look at a newspaper. And he asked them to uh, count the number of photographs in the paper and then give, give the number back to the um, research assistant uh, when they finished and they would be paid 20 pounds, 50 dollars or whatever he was doing. On page three of the newspaper, there was a little advert which said, there are 50 photographs in this newspaper. If you read this advert, you have to go no further, go to reception, we'll pay you $50. And he found that people who were described themselves as lucky were statistically more likely to notice that than people who thought they were unlucky. And his hypothesis is that people who are lucky make themselves open to opportunities. They're aware of opportunities around them and they take them when they see them. And I think that made sense to me that, it, you know, if you say, oh, you're lucky, you, yeah, you were lucky to get that job, you're lucky to do this. No, I was kind of open to the opportunity. I was aware of it and I made myself available. And that's what happened. And I think I would combine that with an element of being willing to take some risk, not, not having to have everything sewn up and definite but going, yeah, this is a bit risky, but it's an opportunity. I'm not quite sure where it'll lead, but let's start out and see what happens. And, and that, that for me is, has, and the other bit of luck I've had is my wife. <laughs> because at the center of chaos, there is always a center of calm and stability. And in my career, that has definitely been my wife. We'll have to make sure that she listens to this. I think the best definition of luck I've heard is luck is where preparation meets opportunity. I think that's a very good way of framing it. Yeah, absolutely right. Martin, can I move into the final three questions that we're asking every guest on the podcast, please? Um, the first is, can you recommend a, a leadership book or a resource for people? And I know you're a voracious reader. We have previously swapped recommendations, so you can have more than one if you like, but something you'd recommend to people. Well, I'm going to recommend what I've decided I want for Christmas, and I haven't told the rest of the family yet. <laughs> But from what I heard of just the small extracts I've read, I want to read The Promised Land. There is a man who had leadership, who had compassion, who had humour, and who has love. And then I think um, I would, the other book I would recommend is Nancy Klein's Time to Think, about creating that space, being that ability to listen. And the second question is, um, a leader that you admire or have admired in the past and why? Well, I think Bruce Keogh should be ruled out immediately. <laughs> Definitely. So, so we'll agree to discard him. Funnily enough, um, I think one of the people who I, I, I most admire um, is, is Keith Willett. So Keith Willett is, was appointed, like myself, as a domain director at the same time at NHS England with uh, responsibility for urgent and emergency care. And Keith has terrific values enormous resilience and are willing to work in and operate in very difficult environments and I think he and, and he's not showy or big about it he just gets on behind the scenes he has had 
and been working endlessly long hours all this year to help the NHS, to help the country survive the impact of COVID. And I have a great deal of admiration and time for him. And he's a, a very compassionate man as well. Um, so I'd call him out. Many, many people, well, he may not be one of the best known or well known, but he would certainly be someone I would recommend people to look at. Thank you, Martin. That's so nice. And um, thoroughly nice guy as well, isn't he, from my brief encounters with him at NHS England. Really yeah, nice. And the final question is, what would be your top sort of top bits of advice for new leaders listening to this? Think about the space you've been given and how you can best occupy it. Don't be afraid to ask for help and get a good coach if you can get one. And don't be destroyed by making a mistake. See it as an opportunity to learn. We all tend to beat ourselves up when we make mistakes, but they are, you will make mistakes. It is an opportunity to learn and it will make you stronger. And the other thing is, um, just enjoy it. Have some fun. It doesn't all necessarily need to be serious and doom and gloom. And that, you know, some of the some of the best leaders I've worked with have always had that little twinkle. Thank you so much, Martin. The time has just flown. I've just looked at the clock and gone, wow. That advice that you gave me a few years ago, most of which you've said in the, in this last hour, has been hugely valuable to me. I really mean that. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nish. It's been a real pleasure. So that was episode 13 with Martin McShane. Hope you enjoyed the conversation and perhaps like me, his bits of advice on things like the imposter syndrome and coping with failure will just float back into your mind at opportune moments in your leadership journeys. As ever, if you'd like to stay connected to NextGen, please sign up to our monthly bulletin, which is bit.ly forward slash NGGP bulletin. And that link is in the show notes. Through the bulletin, you can find out about all our new virtual programmes which are starting up around the country and our national webinars, which anyone is very welcome to join. See you next time for episode 14.